0: gun wranglers and nuke watchers today tuesday april 2nd this is the world i'm marco Werman. the u.n adopts an arms trade treaty we'll hear how it aims to keep guns out of conflict zones around the globe meanwhile north korea rattles the nuclear saber again and it's not clear how the world will respond
1: in diplomacy nature abhors a vacuum And right now, there are very few, if no,
0: contacts with North Korea. And later, Canada mourns the passing of a key figure in the development of Alberta's oil sands.
2: He was skeptical of climate change when it first came around. You know, he asked if global warming had been caused by dinosaur
0: farts. Yep, that's Ahead on the World from Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston.
3: MRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD.
0: I'm Marco Worman, This is The World. On a day when the National Rifle Association is again pushing its plan to train more school personnel to use firearms, the United Nations took a step in a very different direction regarding guns. The U.N. General Assembly voted overwhelmingly today to approve the first U.N. treaty Regulating the global gun trade, the U.S. voted for the measure, which includes provisions aimed at making it harder for terrorists to get weapons and requires countries to take steps to avoid exporting guns to human rights abusers. Raymond Offenheiser is a president of Oxfam America. How big an achievement is this, Raymond?
4: This is really, Marco, a historic achievement for the United Nations and for the international community. This is a project that has been attempted over literally the last hundred years. And over the last 20 or so, there's really been a concerted effort, initially focused on small arms, but then sort of broadening the mandate to be much more inclusive of sort of a broader array of different kinds of conventional weapons. And the fact that we've got a vote today of 153 nations supporting this treaty suggests that there's really widespread support for this.
0: And yet this treaty has no compulsory enforcement mechanism. So doesn't that detract a lot from the deterrent effect?
4: Well, I think one of the things we learned from the experience with the landmine treaty was that once that was put into effect, and you know, not all the governments in the world have actually become signatories to that treaty It created a normative standard that the international community, civil society organizations, the human rights community, the development and and humanitarian community could use to really shine the light on countries that might be in violation. And what we've seen is tremendous change in behavior. And I think what we've learned over the years in the human rights community is that when we get these global normative platforms, we really can use them to set standards, make them better, improve them, and continue a sort of a a global conversation about good behavior. And I think the bottom line is really that's what this is about.
0: Would this treaty have any impact on on a conflict uh, like the one in Syria where parties, including the United States, would like the rebels to be better armed?
4: Well, I think one of the things I think that happens currently in these situations is we have something which I might characterize as a body bag approach in which until we see lots of casualties, we don't act. And at that point, then we introduce sanctions. In this particular case, what we would be doing would be trying to act earlier. And when we saw the kinds of carnage that we've seen in Syria what we would be doing would be challenging any exporter to be thinking twice about whether, in fact, it was appropriate to be exporting weapons to Syria or to the Syrian government in this case, you know, at an earlier stage and cut off those supplies, both weapons and ammunition.
0: So, what's the impact do you think it'll have on current U.S. efforts right here in this country to rein in guns, especially the automatic weapons with large magazines? This
4: particular treaty is really dealing with the question of export of weapons into conflict situations where there is, you know, there are war crimes and human rights violations. It is does not have any uh, impact at all on Second Amendment rights of Americans to carry weapons. And it, in its simplest of terms, actually, what it does is it institutionalizes on a global level the existing system of export and custom control that presently exists within the United States. We license all imports and all exports of weapons, and we monitor where they're coming from and who they're going to when we're in the business of exporting them externally. So this is, in some sense, not connected with the internal debate at all on on weapons, but rather is really focused on the sort of the gun trafficking or weapons trafficking in in the global marketplace.
0: All right, Raymond Offenheiser, we'll leave it there. Thank you. Thanks so much, Marco. Raymond Offenheiser there, the president of Oxfam America. The head of the United Nations had another issue on his mind today, a big one, North Korea. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon warned that North Korea appears to be on a collision course with the international community. Ban is from South Korea and was once that nation's foreign minister. The North Korean government again turned the tension up a notch today by announcing plans to reopen a nuclear facility that had been shut down several years ago. But in the text of a speech released today by North Korea's young leader, Kim Jong-un, there were no new threats to attack the United States or South Korea. Joel Witt is a former U.S. negotiator with North Korea. He says the international community's options are limited.
1: In the case of this nuclear facility, there's really not much anyone can do about it. And so I think Pyongyang's just going to move ahead and produce more material for nuclear weapons.
0: I mean, there's been so much rhetoric uh, lately. How foolish will Kim Jong-un look if he doesn't do something?
1: Well, I, you know, I, I'm not sure he looks foolish. I would say that what North Korea has been doing recently is perfectly predictable from their perspective because they've been subject to what they see as outside pressures that threaten their national security. So for them, the best defense is a good offense. And so that's what we're seeing.
0: If the best defense is a strong offense, it almost sounds like you're saying that North Korea probably is not going to attack anyone.
1: I, You know, I mean, I've been through this kind of crisis before, and I would say I don't expect North Korea to attack anyone. I think the big danger here was um, war by miscalculation or even accidental war. And I still think that's a danger, even if the bluster dies down, because it's quite possible, you know, in the months ahead, North Korea may launch some sort of provocation, just as it did in 2010 when it sunk a South Korean ship and launched an artillery attack on a South Korean island. Mm. If it does that, it'll be different from 2010 when South Korea didn't respond, because today it looks like South Korea will respond. And the danger there is that people in South Korea and the United States think that North Korea is going to roll over and play dead, and they won't Because for the North Koreans, looking weak is almost as good as committing suicide, so they won't look weak. Mm. And that can lead to escalation and a wider conflict.
0: If we're to believe the advice of, and I never thought I'd be asking a question like this, the advice of Dennis Rodman, all Kim Jong-un wants is a phone call from the White House. Um, Let's just say that is what might start some kind of talks that might bring North Korea into the community of nations. Why wouldn't the White House want to at least try that?
1: Well, you know, it's funny you bring that up. Um, You know, it's true that in diplomacy, nature abhors a vacuum. And right now, there are very few, if no, contacts with North Korea, official contacts. In that kind of situation, someone like Dennis Rodman can step in and actually come up with ideas that on the face of it might seem a little screwy, but also make a, a little sense. And that is that We need to figure out how to establish lines of communication with the North Koreans. And that's something we haven't done in the past year or so. So we need to do that. And I'm not saying the president of the United States should pick up the phone and call Kim Jong-un. I think that would be a little silly. But the only way to figure out peaceful paths forward is through sitting down face-to-face with the North Koreans and exploring what's possible and what isn't possible.
0: Joel Witt, former U.S. negotiator with North Korea, speaking with us from Washington. Thank you. Thanks a lot. From a global security challenge to a more local one now, sometimes when authorities are pressured to find culprits for crimes, they can go overboard. Back in 2007, riots erupted in one of the immigrant suburbs of Paris. A police car hit a motorbike, killing two teenage boys. The riots lasted three days, and by the time they ended, more than 100 police officers had been injured. Some were shot. Amy Bracken has a story of one young soccer player who got swept up in the investigation.
5: Mara Conte walks down the streets of Villiers-le-Belle wearing a white Muslim tunic pulled over his soccer attire. Everywhere, people greet him. Some know him, but others just followed the press coverage of his years in jail. One woman congratulates him for his recent book, Prejugé Coupade, or Prejudged Guilty, it's about doing time for a crime for which he was ultimately cleared. Avant avant tout ce qui s'était passé, les nuits de révolte. Speaking at a cafe, he tells me that before all that happened, he played soccer every day, trying to climb the ranks of the European leagues. Like many in villiers le Bel, Conte comes from a Muslim immigrant background. He says back in 2007, there was simmering tension between young people there and the police.
3: There was always a kind of frustration, because every day residents are harassed. It was inevitable that one day people would revolt.
5: The trigger was the death of two teenagers. A police car collided with their motorbike.
3: The two boys who died were like my little brothers. They were old family friends.
5: That night, riots broke out. Conte was among those who took to the streets. He says he just went out to see what was happening, not to make trouble. Hundreds of police and firefighters were called to the scene and more than a hundred sustained injuries, many from buckshot.
3: <laughs> After
6: the
5: riots, then-President Nicolas Sarkozy said those responsible for shooting at police would face charges of attempted murder. But authorities had no leads. In Le Belle no one was talking so the police tried to recruit witnesses. Aurélie Foulon is a reporter for the newspaper Le Parisien. She co-authored the book with Kanté. A few days after the riots, the investigators sent out flyers calling for witnesses to come forward. They promised anonymity and a reward for testimony. A reward of several thousand dollars in a town where incomes are low and unemployment high... Soon, someone came forward, accusing Kanté of having a gun at the riots, something he denies. Kanté was arrested, along with dozens of others, in a sweep of the neighborhood. Then another witness apparently popped up, saying he'd seen Kanté shooting a gun. Foulon says there was no evidence other than anonymous sources.
7: No
5: one knew who was testifying, so Kanté couldn't defend himself. And it turned out that the second witness, who no one knew, and the accuser, who no one knew, were the same person. In the meantime, another detainee implicated Conte. He was charged with attempted murder and kept in pretrial detention for almost 29 months, 11 of them in solitary. That was due to legislation that France adopted after the 9-11 attacks in the U.S. One law permitted witnesses to give anonymous testimony. Another authorized the payment of police informants. But according to critics, authorities crossed a line when they combined the two after the 2007 riots. Nicolas Bonduel is the president of the National Judges Union.
3: The police appealed to the population to testify in exchange for money. It's okay to pay informants, but not general witnesses. Here we saw witnesses who were testifying anonymously, and no one knew if they were being paid. That's unacceptable.
5: But some say there's a need for such aggressive measures. Jean-Pierre Chaustec is the lawmaker who introduced the anonymous witness bill. He says authorities have to break through the wall of silence in places like
8: villiers
6: le bel You can see, especially in public housing in the suburbs, that the witnesses don't want to testify. They're afraid. We must allow them to speak without risking their lives.
5: By the time Conte went to trial, the detainee witness had recanted and the case against him fell apart. Conte was freed in July 2010 and cleared of all charges more than a year later. But two others who were tried alongside him remain behind bars. They were prosecuted using the same strategy of offering payment for anonymous testimony, a strategy that Judge Bonjuel calls abhorrent.
2: It's
3: urgent that something be done so that this never happens again.
5: Conte has petitioned the government for some compensation for his lost years. France's justice ministry says it's reviewing his case, but that was more than a year ago. In the meantime, Conte is hoping he can somehow get his soccer career back on track. For the world, I'm Amy Bracken, Villiers-le-Belle, France.
0: Wherever you are during the day, take the world with you. You can flip through our stories using the popular Flipboard app on your iPhone, iPad, or Android device. And Flipboard now allows you to listen right in the app. Hey, it's radio, know what I'm saying? You can download the app at Flipboard.com slash the world. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by
3: PRI with help from Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. It's a local oil spill in Arkansas, but it's got international implications. To begin with, the oil that burst out of a pipeline last Friday in rural Mayflower, Arkansas, came from Canada. It's very similar to the stuff that the much-debated Keystone XL pipeline would carry across the entire length of the Midwest. And the Arkansas spill has put Keystone backers on the defensive David Sassoon is the publisher of Inside Climate News, which has been closely covering Keystone-related issues. David, tell us what happened in Mayflower, Arkansas, precisely last Friday and what the scene looks like today.
8: Okay, I'll tell you what we know. Last Friday afternoon, a pipeline burst and uh, sent an unknown amount of oil. Estimates range from something like 80,000 gallons to possibly as high as 400,000 gallons. There's been a cleanup effort underway and uh, they say they stopped the oil from entering a recreational lake there. We do know that the oil has entered a creek. The problem, though, is that there is very little information coming out and Exxon is running the show.
0: And why is that? Is this their oil?
8: It is their oil. It is their pipeline. What's supposed to happen, though, is uh, the unified command... It's supposed to be run by the EPA and other government agencies, but they're nowhere in sight. We have a reporter down there, Mm. uh, Lisa Song, who's been reporting on these issues for us for a long time. She is, as far as we know, the only national level media down there. Has she been able to
0: get at what the source of this oil is exactly? Because we've heard reports that say it's similar to Canadian tar sands oil, but from a different part of Alberta. What do you know?
8: They are saying it's from Wabaska. That's in Alberta. And the crude oil monitor lists the Wabaska oil as one of the diluted bitumens or dilbit. There are a whole number of varieties depending on how the bitumen, which is a sort of a peanut butter consistency, is diluted to allow it to flow through pipe. Uh, what are the complications posed by tar, sand, heavy crude oil. Is it
0: a different cleanup operation than, say, you know, the deep water Horizon sludge that came up on the shores of the Gulf of Mexico?
8: Very much so. Uh, we were in Kalamazoo, where there was a million-gallon oil spill in 2010 of Dilbit. And what happens is the lighter hydrocarbons with which it's mixed evaporate, and the heavy bitumen sinks to the bottom. And there is still sludge on the bottom of the Kalamazoo River three years later. And there are really no cleanup methods that work well.
0: So, as I indicated earlier, uh, opponents of the Keystone XL pipeline are jumping on this spill in Arkansas as an example of why that pipeline should not be built. And President Obama slated to make the final call on Keystone. Is this spill likely to affect that decision?
8: Well, it should. It enlarges the conversation. It all depends how much information comes out of there.
0: So in the meantime, uh, I understand one Alberta official said the spill actually makes the case for newer and better pipelines.
8: Well, I I think you're seeing uh, both sides spinning this. I mean, uh, the pipeline down there was 70 years old. One side is using that as an argument that we need new pipelines. But let's remember, the new pipeline is going to be 10 times the size. Hmm. And it is cutting through all kinds of waterways. And I think the big question that the country has to answer is, do we want to make an investment that will last another 50 years in uh, this kind of infrastructure? It's an energy and a climate change question. Nobody has faced it squarely in the political process yet. And so that's the decision that is on the table for the president.
0: David Sassoon, publisher of Inside Climate News there. Meanwhile, the man who might have been called the king of Keystone has died. Ralph Klein actually went by the nickname King Ralph. He was the premier of Alberta for 14 years, and he was a champion of the province's oil industry, which is at the center of the Keystone debate. Klein died last week at the age of 70. The world's Andrea Crossan remembers one of Canada's most colorful politicians.
9: He was an unlikely politician, a high school dropout who worked as a TV reporter before entering the race for mayor of the city of Calgary in 1980. He won a surprise victory.
3: I drew the,
1: the, the greatest bunch of vagabonds,
2: <laughs>
1: misfits, and beautiful people to my campaign who never once said to me, I have to work for this son of a bitch because uh, I owe him something.
9: From the beginning, Ralph Klein never shied away from controversy. He famously referred to people from other parts of Canada who came to Calgary as bums and creeps.
8: There are a few people who come here to either look for a job and find they can't find one and then rob our banks and our convenience stores. Or there are some people who come here for the sole reason of robbing our banks and snatching the purses and mugging our senior citizens. And those are the kinds of people I don't want in this city.
9: Klein was later appointed Alberta's environment minister and thus began his long and combative relationship with environmental advocates. Promoting the oil sands was high on his agenda when he was elected premier in 1992. Dwayne Bratt is Chair of Policy Studies at Mount Royal University in Calgary.
2: He established an Alberta office in Washington to help promote the oil sands. You know they brought Dick Cheney up to view the oil sands and and really it was about promoting just what a vast economic resource was up there. Those are the roles he played Is more of the, the salesman, the communicator about the oil sands.
9: Klein was a fiscal conservative who created investment incentives to speed development of the oil sands. Critics argued that regulators approved oil sands projects without considering the cumulative effects on the environment. Klein publicly gave the finger to an environmental activist at a press conference. He defended his actions by saying that the protester did it first.
2: He was skeptical of climate change when it first came around. You know, he asked if global warming had been caused by dinosaur farts. He later changed his mind. But in those initial years, in the early 2000s, when Kyoto and and climate change and global warming were first coming to attention, he led opposition to it.
9: That opposition led to more confrontations with activists. In 2002, Greenpeace protesters climbed onto the roof of Ralph Klein's home and placed solar panels on it. Klein was not swayed by the protesters or amused.
1: I'm going to serve warning that if anyone, any organization or any individual invades our privacy and trespasses on my property, again, they will be charged without question.
9: Ralph Klein retired from politics in 2006. He was known throughout his political life as a heavy smoker and a hard drinker. In his later years, Klein struggled with dementia and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease— Dwayne Bratt says that Ralph Klein will be remembered as a man of conviction, even if you didn't agree with him.
2: It's tough to find another politician like him. Ronald Reagan may be close, but even Reagan never went into a homeless shelter drunk and screamed at people to get a job, as Klein infamously did. Klein had the ability of being the everyman, the, the ordinary man, and yet could work in the legislature could work in the st louis hotel and the bar he just had the ability to communicate and relate to all albertans and that's probably his biggest accomplishment
9: ralph klein died on friday in calgary at the age of 70. for the world i'm andrea crossin
0: i'm marco worman head brides-to-be in sudan used to fatten up before the wedding now, Finn is in, and fitness is fashionable.
10: There is more acceptability that a woman could be walking on the street because she's exercising. There is appreciation of that, and it is good.
0: Plus, a new technology is selected to spot soccer's mystery goals.
3: PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston. Being slender has become kind of a global ideal, but in many parts of sub Saharan Africa, women have long been encouraged to be plump. The fatter, the better. In Sudan, that's slowly changing. Rising diabetes rates combined with globalized ideas of beauty are sending a new generation of middle class women to the gym. Hana Baba reports from Khartoum.
11: About 20 women are taking an aerobics class at the Sema-style health club in the upscale neighborhood of Riyadh. It's a weekday morning, so these are mostly Khartoum housewives. Most are clearly overweight, and a few verge on obese. It's a women's-only gym that includes a pool, a room full of treadmills and ellipticals, and two nutritionists on staff. Trainer Amal Ahmed says the demand is high and classes are full.
10: Most women don't want
11: to be fat, so they don't get diseases. They're afraid of arthritis and back pain. So all the women want to be slim. At least 30 fitness centers like this have sprung up around Khartoum in the past few years. It's driven in part by rising rates of obesity and diabetes. But Nafisa Bedri of the Ahfad University for Women says
10: the urge to shed pounds isn't just about health. The media has created this image among young women that they have to be very thin, they have to be very skinny, the issue of the models, and so that's made people more aware about the gyms. turn on the tv
11: and you're bombarded with infomercials like this one for a lebanese weight loss product images of svelte lebanese women flash across the screen so middle-class sudanese women feel pressure to drop the pounds and sudanese society is now more tolerant of women going out to exercise according to bedri
10: Now you see more and more people walking around the street. There is more acceptability that a woman could be walking on the street because she's exercising. There is appreciation of that. Unlike a few years ago when it used to be something that men will stand there and they will harass her. Now people are accepting this. They are respecting this, actually. And it is
11: good. Weight loss never used to be a priority here. Sudan had a cultural preference for female fleshiness. Only two generations ago, the custom was to fatten up Sudanese girls before their weddings. Folklore historian Sadia Salahi says it started with the engagement. <laughs>
12: When a girl gets engaged, they get a bed and cut a large hole in the center. The small girl sits in the hole. Then they feed her fatty foods and starchy drinks, and she eats while in bed. And as she grows and fills up the hole,
11: she's ready for the wedding. There was also an economic incentive to fatten the bride up. Al Salahi says before the wedding, a bride used to sit in a smoke bath of burning perfumed acacia wood twice a day for 40 days. During that period, she wouldn't wash. Her body would be basted with aromatic oils until a thick layer forms on her skin, kind of like an overdone barbecue. On day 40, the thick, sooty layer would be peeled off, revealing glowing skin underneath. That layer, called the bennutia, would be folded and sent to the groom's family, who would then weigh it. Whatever the weight is, the groom would match in gold for the bride. So, the larger the woman's body surface area, the more gold would come back to the family. That was then... Six young women in pressed long-sleeve T-shirts and smart pencil skirts are taking a break under a tree at the Ahfad University for Women in Khartoum. They're all management students. When I ask them about body image and changing norms, Tibian Yassin says she feels like she needs to lose weight It's what the guys want nowadays. She says young men see superstars on TV like Rihanna and Beyonce, so she wants to be like that. Her friend, Hanat Mubarak, says she wants to lose weight, but her mom is sabotaging her with calorie-rich, full-fat Sudanese cooking. My mom says, eat more of this, drink some of that. You need to get fatter, but my skirt is tight. I want to feel lighter like the rest of the girls. I ask her what she does to lose weight. <laughs> I can't do anything. I just eat more. I really feel bad because I can't lose weight. I want to cry. Back at Style Gym, trainer Amal Ahmed says they're getting more and more college students, young mothers, and brides-to-be. And if the demand continues to increase, they may add classes for younger girls. She tells me, now the men are the only ones left who'll be fat. For The World, I'm Hana Baba, cartoon.
0: Deep, deep in the Western Pacific Ocean, you'll find the answer to our geo-quiz today. How deep is this place? It's so deep it's pitch black. Sunlight can't penetrate down to the seafloor, which is almost seven miles down. It's so deep that the water pressure would crush you. It's so deep that scientists can only study this extreme environment with robotic equipment designed to tolerate extreme depths. Still, it's a place this oceanographer would love to visit.
13: I would love to go down there one one day and see this fantastic environment with my own eyes and and directly and not through a, a cable and a camera.
0: So can you name the deepest part of the world's oceans? We'll hear what's going on down there when we reveal the answer in a few minutes. The news has a hopscotch quality to it sometimes. Take what's going on in the Central African Republic. Rebels overthrew the government there recently, and yet the story has been having a major impact many miles away in South Africa. The world's Carol Hills follows political cartoons from around the globe, and that's where she first noticed this story. Carol, tell us what's going on here.
12: Well, it has to do with the fact that on March 23rd, in the Central African Republic, 13 South African soldiers died. And it turns out they were fighting the rebels there who were about to topple the president of Central African Republic, François Bouzize. So the question by many South Africans is what were they doing there? And it's caused a huge uproar. 13 died, 27 were wounded, and it turns out that there were 200 South African soldiers there defending the capital.
0: I mean, you can imagine the uproar in this country if uh, U.S. soldiers were killed in another country and we had no idea what they were doing there. So what does President Jacob Zuma of South Africa say these South African soldiers were doing in Central African Republic?
12: Well, Jacob Zuma says the soldiers were there because of a 2007 agreement with the Central African Republic, and they were there to help train and bolster the military – that this was all a sort of advisory role. And then when things started to deteriorate at the beginning of the year, more soldiers were sent. And they weren't there to fight. They were there to protect the South African trainers. But not a lot of South Africans are buying this story. One of the reasons is a member of the South African military said, we had some interest to protect there. But he hasn't explained that, and it's contradicting what Jacob Zuma says the soldiers were doing there. So there's a lot of anger. There's a sense that maybe they were there to protect mining interests. And the fact that they died right alongside Central African Republic forces defending the capital makes everybody feel like, well, at best they were propping up a dictator. What makes it even more chilling is that a lot of the people they ended up killing – The South African soldiers were children. Mm -hmm. And so this has brought up issues of the rebels had child soldiers. So everything about this just is pretty awful.
0: So a violent episode, uh, several mysteries as to what actually is going on must be showing up in pretty lively ways in cartoons.
12: It is, and it comes down to two types of cartoons. And the first is the staying power of Jacob Zuma. There's been a lot of scandals through Jacob Zuma's presidency. Now there's these deaths of the South African soldiers. So one shows him in a boxing ring, and he's holding up his belt after a victory and saying, ultimate survivor on the belt. And another one... He's walking by what looks like a tomb of the unknown soldier. But instead, on the tomb, it says, Tomb of the unknown reason we sent troops into the Central African Republic in the first place. So that's the first type. The second type of cartoon is kind of more gruesome. And it's about the cost of this venture in Central African Republic. One of the cartoons shows a line of South African soldiers walking off a gangplank into a meat grinder. And on the meat grinder, it says, Carnage, C A R is for the Central African Republic. Mm. Um, another one, there's a two panel cartoon. On the first panel, you have a score, and it says home, and it's a South African soccer player, and the score is South Africa 2, Central African Republic nothing. So South Africa is the winner there. And in the panel on the right, you have away, and you have another score, and it's Central African Republic 13, South Africa nothing, 13 being the soldiers. But it's a, it's a real concern, and the story is not going away. People want answers. They feel like there's contradictions in what the South African government is saying, and this will be an issue for a while.
0: Those cartoons that Carol described, as well as others, will be at theworld.org. The world's cartoon editor, Carol Hills. Thanks for chatting with us.
12: You're welcome, Marco.
0: Okay, back now to the deepest place anywhere below the world's oceans. That's what we were looking for in today's geoquiz, and that's where scientists like Robert Tornovich have found an abundance of microbial life forms thriving way down on the seafloor. Tornovich is an oceanographer with the Scottish Association for Marine Science.
13: We are talking about Mariana Trench, the deepest uh, trench in the world ocean. In one point, the Mariana Trench is called the Challenger Deep. That's the deepest location in the world ocean and the depth almost seven miles, which means the hydrostatic pressure at the seafloor is almost 1,100 times higher than at the sea surface. So the pressure is really high compared to what we experience at the surface of the sea or on land.
0: Why did you choose one of the planet's most inaccessible places to do research?
13: Basically, because very little is known about what's going on down there in a number of respects. One is to find out, are there organisms down there? How active are there? We know quite little about what's going on in the shallower parts of the deep sea, but we didn't have any knowledge so far about these very, very deep places.
0: And you have found that microscopic life forms do thrive in the Mariana Trench.
13: These microorganisms, tiny single-celled organisms, they are so small that only special microscopes can make them visible to the human eye. So they are really tiny. These microbes, they also need food, and they burn this food to produce new cells and to multiply and to grow. And to do so, they have to consume food. And uh, as part of this food consumption, oxygen is consumed as well. And it's a process that's very similar to our breathing, the Mm -hmm. breathing we do as human beings. And that's what we measured with certain machines that were deployed at the seafloor.
0: Right. So with the pretty high-tech video recorders and other technology you're using to see what's down there, what do you see?
13: The seafloor is actually... Uh, fairly featureless. Um, There are small uh, microstructures in the sea surface which are probably produced by organisms that uh, moved over the sediment surface or uh, dug into the sediment but when the sediments that we retrieved were analyzed there was not much uh, evidence for macroscopic life. Uh, The main evidence for macroscopic life that we got through the, the video footage was so-called amphipods. They are shrimp-like animals that move fairly slowly around in the near seafloor waters. So not only these microbes, which we focused on so far, live down there, but also some larger organisms that can be seen on video footage.
0: What can microbial life at the deepest part of the, the world's ocean, what does it reveal about life elsewhere on the planet?
13: Some People believe that there could be an evolutionary perspective to this, especially when it comes to uh, life forms that not necessarily depend on light. During the dive of famous film director James Cameron to to the Mariana Trench, he and his colleagues found evidence for microbial mats. They grow on rock outcrops. And it is believed that water percolates through this porous rock. And while this uh, water percolates through the rock, it extracts uh, minerals and nutrients. And these are then consumed by uh, these microbes that form the microbial mats. They gain energy, which then helps them grow and multiply. Some researchers believe that these uh, types of organisms that don't rely on photosynthetically produced food, that they might actually hold some evidence for the origin of life billions of years ago.
0: Oceanographer Robert Turnovich with the Scottish Association for Marine Science telling us about life at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. That's the answer to our geo-quiz. Dr. Turnovich, thank you.
13: Thank you for having me.
0: Hey, if you want a sneak peek of what we're working on during the day before we hit the airwaves, you should follow the world on Twitter. The program's Twitter handle is at PRI the world, and I tweet at Marco Wurman. We tweet all day and a lot of the night. This is PRI. I'm Marco Worman, This is The World Soccer and Technology. Haven't gone traditionally hand-in-hand, but that's about to change. FIFA, soccer's world governing body, has finally picked a goal-line technology. That may sound arcane, but it could be pretty important for soccer fans. Here's the world's soccer maestro, William Troop, to tell us
6: why. Well, it's, first of all, big news because they've, they've actually now followed up on their pledge to introduce goal-line technology at big events like the World Cup. Uh, where they've had so many uh, decisions that have been controversial through the years where, you know, a ball maybe bounced inside the goal, but then the spin made it bounce back out and the referee didn't see that it was a goal. But it's also news that they picked a vendor that on the surface offers a very simple technology. It's basically seven cameras focused on a soccer goal, and the combined images are then analyzed to determine where the ball is. Uh, And that's it. No special uh, magnetic field uh, around the goal or underneath the grass, no special lines, no cameras inside the goalposts, all of which uh, would make it kind of a complicated system. Wow. So uh, what technology did FIFA decide to go with, and how does it work? Well, they picked a German company called Goal Control, and the technology is called Goal Control 4D. And in addition to those seven cameras uh, that I mentioned before uh, focused on each goal, um, there's some software on the back end that analyzes the, the images from all the cameras, puts it all together. And then if the software detects that uh, the ball did cross the line entirely and is a goal, a signal is sent electronically to this watch on the central referee's wrist, and it says goal. Mm. <laughs> and so he, he gets that in within a second of the, the ball crossing the line, and he is alerted that it's a goal in case he didn't see it. Incredible. And U.S. soccer fans will see this German technology in action, if I'm not mistaken, the next World Cup. That would be Brazil 2014. They should. Um, What happens next is that uh, this technology will be tested this year at a dry run of the World Cup, a a tournament called the Confederations Cup that will be held in Brazil. If everything works out well, then they will use it at the World Cup and hopefully no more bad calls.
0: And, William, uh, let's end on a point of play since you brought it up. Uh, A ball goes into the goal,
6: spins, and comes back out. Is it a goal or not? Absolutely a goal. In soccer, the rule is, does the whole ball cross over to inside the the goal? If so, that's a goal. Mm-hmm. If it bounces back out, it's still a goal. The world's
0: William Troop. Thank you. Thank you. Finally today, the story of a singer named Suri Shanti. She grew up in one of the poorest provinces in Cambodia, and she left home when she was 18 to try to make a better living in Cambodia's capital, Phnom Penh. Reporter Shuka Kalantare tells us how Chanti went from working in the rice fields to becoming a singer in an international Khmer psychedelic rock band.
7: Like a lot of little kids, Suri Chanti's seven-year-old son, Makara, likes imitating his mom.
10: When I play concert, my son, he dancing and he sings.
7: But not everyone's mother is the singer for a psychedelic rock band. When I say, Chenamo na he said, "Som Lang, som Mom. na Brahmoi. moved to Phnom Penh, Cambodia's capital, so she could support her family back home in Prey Veng, a rural province in northern Cambodia.
10: When I come to Phnom Penh, I work clean house one month, uh, $7.50, one month.
7: a month wasn't enough to make ends meet. So when her roommate told her she could make a lot more money as a massage therapist, she jumped at the opportunity. But when Chanti meant to meet her prospective employer, she immediately realized she had been tricked. Two men locked her in a room, tied her to a bed with electrical wires, and told her she was now their sex worker. He said, you
10: stay here. You never go out. I said, what happened to me now?
7: A few hours later, a woman in the building heard Chanti's cries for help and came to her rescue. She cut off the electrical wires around Chanti's wrists with a knife. She said, where
10: you go now? I said, I don't know. He said, you go away, not come back. But she gave
7: money at $2.50. $2.50 enough money for me. can't go back in my village. But instead of going back to her village, Chanti stayed in Phnom Penh and got another job at a construction company. When a co-worker heard her singing to herself one day, he suggested another way to make some extra cash, singing at karaoke bars. So Chanti started singing Khmer versions of Western rock songs from the 60s and 70s at various karaoke bars, bands like Jimi Hendrix, The Yardbirds, and Nancy Sinatra. <laughs> Chanti was working at one of these karaoke bars when she met Julian Polson, a musician from Tasmania. Polson played Chanti psychedelic rock songs from famous Cambodian singers from the 60s and 70s, like Pan Ron and Ross Surayi Suti, Khmer musicians who were influenced by Western music introduced by GIs during the Vietnam War.
6: She was very, very surprised that she had met a foreigner, a barang, who had all this stuff. She was, oh, oh, you know, she's very excited.
7: Soon after, they decided to put a show together in Phnom Penh, and the Cambodian Space Project formed. That was in 2009.
6: Our first release was a vinyl called Kinyom and Te, It means I'm unsatisfied.
7: The album is homage to the many Cambodian rock singers who were murdered when the Khmer Rouge took control of Cambodia in 1975. Polson says even today, Cambodia is still trying to recover the art and culture it lost.
6: To find a singer like uh, Chantee is like, you know, discovering a young Etta James or a, a Nina Simone, you know. She's the, um, really the barefoot Cambodian diva of the rice fields.
7: Cambodian space project's newest album includes famous songs from Cambodian singers who were killed by the Khmer Rouge in the '70s. It also has two songs written by Chanti about her own struggles to make it in Phnom Penh. I
10: am never go to school. I not easy for me write song. I'm go outside Cambodia
7: not easy for me sometimes. That includes the title track, "Not Easy Rock and
10: Roll." <laughs> In the past five
7: years, Cambodian Space Project has toured throughout Europe, Southeast Asia, and even South by Southwest in Austin. When the band goes back to Cambodia in between tours, Sari Chanti becomes a bit of a celebrity, especially to young women like herself, who moved to the big city in order to make a living beyond the rice fields. the world. I'm Shuka Kalantari, Phnom Penh, Cambodia.
0: What a remarkable story. Surit Shanti sings a song that was such a hit with her son, I Am 16, the videos at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation, for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International